Father, we thank you for your word, for the opportunity to open your word. Lord, we are not left in this world uh, trying to figure things out, but by your grace, you have given us your word written down. And Lord, as we come to it today, we ask for wisdom and understanding. We recognize it's an understanding that we need that is outside of ourselves. It is a truth that by you, by your Holy Spirit, that you bring us the understanding. So Lord, today, help us that we might not just know your word, but know how to put it into action, how to worship you in light of it. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today in Genesis chapter 37, we uh, encounter one of probably the best known characters in much of the Bible. Uh, There's been um, musicals made of him, movies made of him. We see the character of Joseph come to light on the pages in chapter 37. What's interesting is we come to the book of Genesis. Often we can see the book of Genesis and even the whole Bible as just a whole bunch of character studies. But we must kind of guard ourselves from being too fixated on the person and not miss the reason why God has placed that character in his revealed word. A pastor who, and an author that I've greatly benefited from is Vodi Bauckham. And Vodi Bauckham has actually written a book entitled uh, uh, About Joseph. And he says in his book, we must guard ourselves from just grabbing moralistic teachings from it. Because we can go to Aesop's fables and find moralistic teachings. But God's word has so much more than just a whole bunch of morals that we should learn. Yes, as we walk through the life of Joseph, we'll see some great things to learn. But we must see his life as pointing us to something so much greater. So as we look at Joseph, what I want us to see is that, first of all, yes. um, And if you want to take some notes, I've kind of created a little bit of an outline. And each one is kind of, it says it's a passage about A. And number one, we see that this is a passage about a son. It's very clear. There is a lot recorded here in just these first 11 verses about this son. And his name is Joseph. And from the beginning of this, we see that Joseph is about how old? 17. And at age 17, he is working in somewhat of a family business already. It's a great blessing to work as families. And though he is younger than his brother, older brothers, uh, he is participating in it. And at age 17, he's involved in the pasturing of the flock. Excuse me, the shepherding of the flock out in the pastures. Next week, we will see even that he is working hard and he is being sent out by his father because his older brothers take the flock further away. And that he is to be able, able to be trusted by his father, to know that he's going to do the work. He's going to be faithful to accomplish that. What's interesting is often in our culture, we say a 17-year-old isn't old enough to really be involved in work, that they haven't grown up enough, they haven't hit that age yet. And yet, we see in the life of a great example of Joseph and, and many characters throughout the Bible, of them working even at young ages in appropriate ways, But Joseph is being a faithful worker, but not only is he a faithful worker, but I believe he's also being honest. In verse 2, it says he was a boy, halfway through it, it says he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. 
This is giving us a little context that that more than likely he's in kind of the, the younger ages. And we know that because he's one of the youngest. But it since he's kind of spending time around them, and he says, and it says that Joseph brought a bad report to them, of them, to their father. Often we can say, look at Joseph, he's a tattletale. And honestly, sometimes when we look at how the scripture reads, it, it kind of lends itself to that. That, oh, look at, look at Joseph, he, he's just telling about all of his brother's faults. Yet, that's not actually what is being said here. Literally, in the Hebrew, it says he brought a report that was bad. He didn't come with an intent of bringing bad report. He was stating what was happening. He wasn't trying to code it, but he was honest. He actually is just sharing the truth, stating what is happening. His father is not seeing what all is going on. We don't know if he was asked to give a report, but there's an honesty in him of willing to say the truth. I never had this problem. I'm an only child. I, I, I didn't have to give bad reports. But sometimes telling the truth is what we need to say. Because sometimes telling the truth is what will protect us in the long run, even though it can sometimes create problems. And when the truth is told about us, when we've done something wrong, we don't always like it. And sadly, his brothers do not like how they are spoken about. He is a younger boy here, and yet he is still speaking truth. He's a worker, he's honest, but he's loved as well. In verse 3, it says, Now Israel, who is Israel? Jacob. Notice even in this short passage, it speaks Jacob and Israel, Jacob and Israel. And those two are interchangeable. And sometimes, especially if maybe it's an unfamiliar passage, we can get a little confused. But Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. He's not the youngest of the sons. Who's the youngest? Benjamin. Don't we have a Benjamin here? Yeah. Yeah. I actually had a friend growing up. His name was Joseph Benjamin. And it's kind of funny that those are the two sons of Rachel. And Joseph was loved by his father. There was something that caused Jacob to love Joseph the most. And the text gives us a little bit of a clue. It says, because he was the son of his old age. What's interesting is this isn't said about Benjamin. And Benjamin is the youngest. But there's something unique about the relationship between Jacob and Joseph. And Joseph is loved. And his father gives him a special gift. He gives him a special cloak. And often we call it the coat of what? The coat of many colors. What's kind of interesting is the Hebrew doesn't say anything about a coat of many colors. All it talks about is a coat that goes to the sleeves and ankles. Where we get this idea, and I, I, I was looking at it, I'm saying, how do we get this idea of coat of many colors? The only reason we get coat of many colors is because there's a thing called the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in that, they use a word that is speaking of many colors. 
And so what's happened is historians have then grabbed that word from the Greek Septuagint, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and have brought that into our modern context. Is it wrong to say he had a coat of many colors? I don't know. But what I think we need to realize is that the Hebrew says it was a coat that went to the wrists and to the ankles. We see this happen. Uh, the only other time in Scripture that it is spoken of is in 2 Samuel 13. When Tamar was sp- spoken of, and it said, Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves. That's the same exact word in Hebrew. And so we see that Joseph was given this. Now it was a special gift. Because it was something that uh, tradition has said that the long sleeves were the places that you stored your uh, titles to your land, um, your money and stuff. And so people who had long sleeves often were the more wealthy. There was a blessing that was given by Jacob to Joseph. And he was loved. He was loved by his father. But this love, in verse 4 we see, actually stirs up a hatred. In verse 4 it says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all this, all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Throughout this text we see that they are jealous that he is hated. Here in verse 4, they cannot speak peacefully. In the Hebrew culture, even today, there is a greeting. A greeting of shalom. It means peace. It means, may peace be with you. And it's a greeting that's said when you arrive and when you leave. And his brothers hated him so much, they weren't even willing to say that. They weren't even willing to say, hey, peace be with you. They didn't want peace to be with him. There was a hatred toward them. The NASB translates that phrase, they were not on friendly terms. Kind of sad when those things happen inside of a family, isn't it? Sometimes they happen because of our sinful desires. Sometimes they happen because of something that takes place in our family. But we see a a son who is loved, but yet he is hated. And in verses 5 to 11, we see that he is also a dreamer. Not just a, a dreamer, like he has great ideas. But in the context of Genesis, a dream is a divine revelation coming. Now, we dream, but we do not receive divine revelation. We're talking about two different things. But this is when the, the scriptures speak of how the angel of the Lord came to him in a dream. Revelation is being given to him. And notice verse 5. It says, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. In verse 6, it gives us the details. This is a very common way of speaking in the Hebrew context, that there would be an overview given and then more details are brought back and filled in. This is exactly what we see happens in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. A lot of people say, well, there's two creation accounts. Well, Genesis 1 is the overview of the creation account. Genesis 2 brings in more details. This is exactly what fits here. Joseph has a dream, and then we see the, the explanation of what is happening in the dream. The sheaves are being bound together. Notice this family was an agricultural family, an agrarian family. They were binding the sheaves together. They would, 
in a sense, take the stalks and wind them together. And Joseph is saying that the sheave that he had was standing upright. And his brother's sheaves were what? They were bowing down. Now, sometimes with a dream, we have to figure out what is the interpretation of it, but the text actually helps us with the interpretation. His brothers hate him all the more because they say, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? It's kind of funny. They say the same thing twice. Maybe it's a count of one brother and another brother saying it. But we see that we're not left to kind of wonder. And what can be our tendency sometimes is to take this passage and to try to read all of these spiritual overtones to it. Now this symbolizes this and this symbolizes that. But yet the text has given us the interpretation. The brothers know exactly what this dream means that, that Joseph is going to be in some type of authority over them and they will bow down to him. Now again and again we must put ourselves in the context of Joseph's life. There was a hierarchy in a family. The firstborn was the alpha. And the others were to, in a sense, kind of follow around him. But throughout Genesis we've seen that God does not work in the ways that man works. And here... The brothers who are really higher in honor are the ones who will be bowing down to one of the youngest. And of course that doesn't go over well. And in verse, at the end of verse 8, it says, So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Again, we can come to this passage and to say, Well, look at Joseph. He's just taunting his brothers. He's just making fun of them. Does the text say that? No, but we know our own hearts. And sometimes I think we put our own sin on somebody else when it's not even stated. We see the life of Joseph and we do not see him coming with arrogance. He's simply telling them what his dream was. In the text, do we see him saying, I am going to be greater, you are going to bow down to me? No, actually in the text, his brothers come up with the interpretation. And so we need to be careful not to say that this is a sinful thing that Joseph is doing. Am I saying that Joseph is perfect? No. But what I am saying is let's be careful not to throw things on, on Joseph just because maybe that's maybe what we would have done. The text continues in verse 9 and it says he had another dream. Notice this as we continue to study the life of Joseph. Dreams are going to come in sets of two. We're going to see multiple times where the dreams come in sets of two. This second dream, he says, The sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. I have to admit, when I was reading this passage this week, I was thinking stars. You know, like a little five-pointed little star bowing down. No, this is actually talking about heavenly celestial stars. The actual word is spheres bowing down to him. Now this one is different because verse 10 helps us know that he tells this one to his father. And what does his father do? He rebukes him. He rebukes him and says, 
What is this dream? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? Does Joseph give the translation or the interpretation? No. But we see how we need to apply this passage, that they clearly understood what this dream was all about, that his brothers, his mother, and his father would bow down, but that brings a problem. His mother's dead. Do you realize that? His mother, Rachel, died during childbirth of that 11th son, Benjamin. So what's going on here? Two answers to this. It could be a mother-type figure, um, we know that Bilhah was the one who raised Joseph as a baby. It could be the position, and we see that polygamy has taken place here, that one of these others has taken that place of a mother. So just because his mother's not alive doesn't mean that this is not speaking of a mother figure. But again, this helps us to realize that we're to be careful on how we interpret, because the text has already given us the interpretation. We don't need to go beyond that. The two responses to these dreams, the brothers were jealous, but at the end of verse 11 it says, but his father kept this saying in mind. It's very similar to uh, Mary. And it says, and she remembered these things. And she remembered what the angel of the Lord, she pondered these things. Jacob kind of put it in that little memory bank, but in a special place in his memory bank, that he would remember what was to take place. This is almost a little hint out of the, out of the text that should jump out to us to say, hey, there's something about this that we need to just kind of hang our hat on because we're probably going to see this in, in coming passages. But literally, he observed or he put it to memory. Now you might be thinking, hey, we hit verse 11. He's done preaching already. But this passage isn't all about Joseph. We can be quick and we can, we, or we can be slow and we can look at all these little aspects of Joseph and we can say, hey, we need to be like this and we need to be like this. And while we walk through the life of Joseph, we're going to see many godly characteristics that we should look at. Absolutely. But this passage is not primarily about Joseph. It is also a passage about a man. And that's where it actually starts Look at verse 1 again. What's the first name you see? We can talk in church again. Jacob. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. Verse 2. These are the generations of... That's what we think. Exactly. We think it's about Joseph. But notice, sometimes I think we read over this and not even think about it. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph this, and then, wait, where's the list of all the names? This is primarily a passage to help us to look at the life of Jacob. Now we're going to see the life of Jacob through the lens of Joseph. Does that make sense? So starting here in chapter 37, we see, but who is Jacob? Just a little bit of review. Jacob is a patriarch. 
In Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, we see Moses wondering and asking God, Who are you? He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Joseph, right? Just seeing if you're listening. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. So Jacob plays an important role. An important role that we must be reminded of. In Matthew chapter 22, we see this is what Jesus is is quoting here in Exodus 3. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is speaking, he uses that same phrase. We see that these three patriarchs are held in a unique place in the life of a Jewish person. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not Joseph, but Jacob. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 28. I want us to kind of make sure we're remembering our context Last night when we were talking about this passage in our, our time of family worship, I asked my kids, because it's funny, I was actually preaching in the book of Genesis back in California. Uh, we only got to about 21, and now we're jumping ahead to 37. And so I was asking my kids, now who is Jacob? And Brennan goes, Jacob's ladder. And this is the passage here in chapter 28 of Jacob's ladder. Look at verse 12 and following. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in, your, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now I realize Mr. Powers has been walking through the book of Genesis slowly. And I think that's awesome. But this passage should sound familiar. Not just because this passage is, was preached a while back. But that this is an echo of something else before that. What does this echo back to to Isaac it echoes back all the way to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 we see that the promise to Abraham was moved to Isaac and now it's moved to Jacob and what is this promise it had three pieces look at verse 13 the land on which you will lie I will give to you that's the first promise a promise of land Secondly, we see your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, that there shall be a great offspring that takes place. So a people. And then number three, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. A blessing to all the peoples. And we know that that blessing is to come through a seed, a son. These three promises were given to Abraham back in chapter 12. And we see that God is a faithful God to keep his promises. Just as Abraham came out of Ur, came over to Canaan, down to Egypt, back up to, uh, to Canaan, 
God was faithful and said, I'm going to provide this to you and your offspring. And here we see that in our text back in Genesis 37, that Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. What is Jacob? What are Jacob's sons doing in one of Joseph's dreams? They're binding sheaves together. That's not a nomadic family. That's a family who is planted. They are in the land of promise, but it is not theirs yet. Just like Abram and Abraham, same guy. He was in the land, but it was not his yet. There's an already not yet aspect that is going on in the passage. But living in the land is a picture of God's blessing. All the way back to Genesis chapter 2, we see that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. The place of blessing. And when sin happened, they were cast out. They were cast out of that blessing. And that land was a picture of blessing. When Abraham and Lot separated, Abraham was in the land. Lot was out on the outside. We see the pictures throughout Genesis of the land is a place of blessing. And now we come to Jacob, and Jacob is living in the land. And our text is very clear. Because Jacob had wandered, where is this land that Jacob is in, excuse me, that Isaac had wandered. That where is Jacob? He is in the land of Canaan. What, as we see that this emphasis was here, we see that he is actually in Beersheba. Um, that's where Isaac ended up. Um, where was that? I was looking at it yesterday. I apologize, I didn't jot it down in my notes. But this is also a contrast, because in chapter 36, where is Esau? Out of the land. Esau is out of the land. He's out of the land of promise. But Jacob is in the land of promise, though it is not his. his, He and his family do not possess it yet. And from old times to modern day Israel... Dan to Beersheba, those are the sayings. That's that's Israel, the land of Israel, not the person Israel. Well, look at verse 2 again. These are the generations of Jacob. If you do a word search on these are the generations, you're going to realize that this is a repeated phrase throughout the book of Genesis. And even just a couple weeks ago, Mr. Powers shared with you the word Toledot. You remember that? Toledot is the Hebrew word meaning generations or descendants. We're going to do a quick survey of Genesis, so hang on with me. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations, sound familiar? Of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of who? Of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1. 
These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Who are they? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of who? Chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of? Terah. Now there's a little bit of a, a jump here because we skip over Abraham. Notice Abraham does not have a Toledot. Jumps all the way over to chapter 25, verse 12. Do you find it? These are the generations of Ishmael. Chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of who? Isaac. Isaac. Now jump over to chapter 36. Hopefully you remember from just a couple weeks ago. These are the generations of Esau. And then we come to chapter 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. We've been walking through from creation to Adam to Noah to his sons all the way up to Jacob. There's 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, and this is the last one. This is the last one because this is where the focus is to lie, is on Jacob, on God's provision of his promises in the life of Jacob Primarily through his son named Joseph. While we'll see a lot about the life of Joseph, we can't lose the context that this is the picture of God fulfilling his promises, not to Joseph, but to Jacob. Because this is the land. This is the land that God is going to give them. And this is the promise that they're going to have to hold on to through the life of Moses. Until the exodus brings them back. So when we see the life of Joseph, we have to kind of keep coming back and get that that big perspective, that that 30,000 foot view and not forget that this from chapter 37 to 50 is not all about Joseph. It's actually helping us to see how God is fulfilling his promise to his father Jacob. Often, I forget about that. I get so fixated on who is Joseph? What's he doing? How's this? What's going on here? What's going on here? And miss the overarching picture of the plan of God working in the lives of the patriarchs. Since it's about Jacob, see, I almost said it. Since it's about Jacob, let us be reminded he had, say, four wives, technically two wives, two concubines. Leah had six children, Bilhah had two, Zilpha had two, and Rachel had two. But even though Jacob was a patriarch, he was also a sinner. He also had promises, excuse me, he also had sins that he struggled with because of his flesh. First of all, he's a polygamist. And sadly, when we seek to do things outside of God's ordained plans, problems arise. But he also showed favoritism. He loved one son more than the others. And it's interesting here in chapter 37, verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph 
we see that same phrase back in chapter 29, verse 18, when it says, Jacob loved Rachel. He loved one wife more than another. He loved one son more than another. Lest we think that the patriarchs are some perfect people, we have to be reminded that they were sinful. One of my favorite verses is says, Moses was a man just like us. Different translations say it. Moses is a man with character just like us. We have to be reminded that when we read and we see these characters and we think, wow, aren't they so great? Yes, God did amazing things through them, but they're still fallen human beings. But the joy of even like a King David, called a man after God's own heart, but he was an adulterer and a murderer. But God is a God who redeems, a God who restores that which is broken. And even in the midst of a sinful patriarch and a a family that's riddled with problems and a a world that is full of sin, God fulfills his promises. But this passage in the book of Genesis and the whole of Scripture is not about Jacob primarily. But we need to see Genesis chapter 37 in the context of the overarching plan of God to provide a redeemer. The land was a great promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The descendants were a wonderful promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But that third promise that promise that there would be a blessing through their seed, that all the world would be blessed, that points us toward Christ. It points us to our need for a Savior because Jacob was in need of a Savior. Jacob's sons were in need of a Savior because of their sin. Joseph, though we don't see any recorded sin in him, we know that he was born in the flesh. He was a sinner. He needed a Savior. God uses unorthodox means to accomplish His plan of redemption. Lest we get too focused on Joseph, we have to look at the New Testament, and the New Testament only speaks of Joseph twice. One, he's in the Hall of Faith, and the other one was Stephen sharing somewhat of a a history of the, the nation Israel. So we need to see that Joseph was not all this wonderful character that that spans and helps us understand the New Testament. But the New Testament helps us understand that there's something greater than Joseph. Vodi Bakum in his book on Joseph says, Anything we see in the character of another is only praiseworthy to the degree that it reflects the character of Christ. The Bible is not a book of character studies. It's a book of redemption. Joseph is a link in the chain of redemption. Therefore, reading and interpreting the life of Joseph, if done right, will exalt God's redemptive work. As we continue our study through the life of Joseph, we need to continue to see his life as a reflection of that which is so much greater. To see that greater Joseph, to recognize that 
there's a lot of debate. Is Joseph a type of Christ? Meaning a prefiguring, a, a shadow of Christ. I think in a lot of ways, yes. Um, we have to be careful with any type typology we do because then we can start to look at all these little things. Now the pit is symbolic of this and the chains are... are we need to be careful of those things. A type is a type in very clear ways. And we do see that he was hated by his brothers. He sold for pieces of silver. We see that he was in the pit and exalted. We see those overarching things. But it shouldn't cause us to say, wow, Joseph, we should say, wow, look at and see how amazing Christ is. That we see the picture of him on every page. We see our need, but we see our provision in Christ. I thank God that Joseph and Jacob are given as examples. I'm thankful for examples of Abraham and Isaac. Though not perfect, they are examples of people who walk by faith and not by sight. But as we study these characters, we must continue to see the God who they serve, the God who makes them who they are, the Christ who is yet to come. Because all of them were in need of redemption. All of them were in need of being made right with God. And they couldn't do it themselves. And our hope is looking forward to that perfect Joseph, if you want to say, in Christ. As he died and he took our place, took upon the sin of his children on himself. And that's the great joy each Sunday we have, even as we come to communion. Why do we have communion each week as a reminder of our need for Christ, but also not just our need, but our provision? In the life of Joseph and Jacob are that reminder that God fulfilled his promises. Are we thankful for that? I am. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, today as we see the life of, of Joseph, we're reminded of your promises to Jacob. Lord, as a, a broken and sinful man, not perfect, in need of a Savior, we're thankful that you, you fulfilled your promises. And as we continue to look at the life of Joseph, let us be thankful for him, but to give praise for the man you made him. Lord, today as we continue our time through observing communion, Lord, Show us our need. Show us our need, but thank you that we are not left needed. But we're given provision in Christ. Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.